You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, here's what I want you to do. Uh, it's kind of a dead crowd. Are you, are you guys with me? Are we all right? All right, all right. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is going to be great this morning, because here's, here's the deal. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, we're going to spend the next few weeks there. I'll go ahead and tell you right up front, this has to do with generosity, living generously. Paul's writing right here in the middle of this letter. He's, he's writing a fundraising letter to the Corinthians. But let me say it this way so that we're all clear. Make sure you're looking at me. If you haven't already checked out, make sure you hear me. While Paul is writing a fundraising letter, I am not preaching a fundraising sermon. I'm not asking you for anything. So you don't have to hang on to your wallets. You don't know. We're not going to take a special offering. There's no big thing I'm announcing. We're just going to talk about generosity because here's the thing. What Paul does in these two chapters, he so, he's talking about stuff. He is. He's talking about their stuff. But he's talking theology. He, he's not talking percentages and amounts and, and numbers. He's not trying to measure anything. He's speaking theologically about how do we live in the world as believers. And it's particularly relevant to us because the church in Corinth is very much, very much like the church in the 21st century. So Corinth's an interesting place. I'll tell you a couple of things about Corinth, and then I'll tell you a little bit about Paul's relationship with Corinth. So Corinth, in the first century, at the time Paul enters into the city, Corinth is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was, it was known as a miniature Rome. That, that's how it was patterned after. But before Corinth was a miniature Rome, before it was this massive Roman city, it was in the days long past, it was part of the Greek Empire. In fact, it was one of the showcases of the Greek Empire. They had, they had a library. They had this huge temple to Aphrodite and then another huge temple to Poseidon. It was, um, it, it was amazing. In fact, Strabo, who's an old, old, you know, ancient historian, he said this, that at the golden age of Corinth, and he's going to speak about the temple of Aphrodite. There was a thousand prostitutes that served the temple. And he, I mean, he writes that. He's bragging about Corinth. It was a worldly place even back then. Here's what happened. In 146 B.C., so 140 years, 50 years before Jesus was born, the Roman emperor comes to Corinth and destroys it, levels it to the ground. And he does it because they had been openly opposed to Rome. So he comes in, the army comes, wipes out Corinth, and for a hundred years, Corinth is a ghost town, uninhabited. Then in 46 BC, Julius Caesar comes to Corinth and loves it. And so what he does is the Roman emperor, he turns around and he reestablishes Corinth as a Roman 
colony. In fact, they rebuild Rome. They rebuild it like Rome. I mean, rebuild Corinth. They rebuild it like Rome. It becomes this new Roman Corinth. And it is ripe with opportunity. So people were flocking to Corinth. They were flocking to Corinth, much like people were flocking to San Francisco during the gold rush. It was the place to come to make your fortune. It was the place to come to make your name. In fact, a lot of people came in the very beginning. They were robbing the graves of the old ancient people, and they were using that to start their their wealth, their businesses, their banks. In, In fact, you could say this about Corinth. If you had tried, say in Rome or some other place in the empire, to, to rise in the social ladder or, or to make a name for yourself or to build wealth or to build a business, but you kept hitting this glass ceiling or this class ceiling. You never could break through into the next phase. Corinth was your place. It didn't have all the history and the bureaucracy of the rest of Rome. It was for the Johnny-come-nows. It was a place of new wealth and new opportunity. In fact, slaves from all over the world who had escaped their owners came to Corinth for asylum. It was a growing, ripe, full city, and it became the melting pot of the Roman Empire. If you wanted to get ahead, Corinth was the place to go. In fact, a couple of notes about it. One ancient writer said, wealth and ostentatious display became the hallmark of Corinth. Another ancient writer said this after visiting Corinth. He literally walks in to Corinth and then he walked out of it and he wrote this. I learned in a short time the nauseating behavior of the rich and the misery of the poor. That was Corinth. That's Corinth in Paul's day. Now, Corinth is interesting. It's a fascinating city. You you want to read about something fascinating, read about the history of Corinth. But even more fascinating than that is Paul's relationship with Corinth, specifically Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth. So here's, here's how it goes. It begins, if, if we took the time, we'd go to Acts 18, and we'd see when Paul shows up in Corinth. What we'd see when he shows up there, he uh, begins to preach the gospel. Acts, uh, the book of Acts tells all about it. And it's, a, it's about A.D. 49. It's Paul's second missionary journey. He comes into Corinth, and here's what he does. He comes in, and he makes tents by day. Paul was a tent maker. Comes in, he makes tents. There's a lot of need for tents in Corinth. And so he makes the tents, and then by night and on the weekends... He preached the gospel in the synagogues until the people in the synagogues kicked him out. So we don't want to hear about this anymore. So he goes next door to the Gentile hall, the, the Masonic Lodge of the Gentiles or whatever, okay? And, and so he goes over there. He creates a stir. Now the Jews are mad at him. He causes this stir in the city. They take him to the, uh, to, to the mayor of the city. The mayor of the city says, well, I don't want anything to do with that. Y'all go back and figure it out yourself. You could read on in Acts, and you see that even though there's this great conflict he met with, um, the, 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 the gospel was very successful. There was a lot of fruit from this ministry. People heard the gospel, believed in Jesus, and were saved. And a church is planted. So Paul remains in Corinth for 18 months. 
Now, he's on a missionary journey. He stops in Corinth. He, he, he lives there for 18 months, plants this church as their first pastor, begins to grow them up in the faith. He leaves there then to go to Ephesus to, to his next stop on the journey. And all seems well, except when he leaves the church, he arrives at Ephesus, and he gets a report almost immediately when he hits Ephesus that, hey, listen, since you left, things have kind of deteriorated. You, um, you left, and there was this vacuum. There was this vacuum of leadership, and nobody really stepped up like we thought they were and began teaching the gospel. And so here's what's happened. The people in the church in Corinth have gone right back to living like they're in Corinth. They're living with one foot in Corinth and another foot in the church. And so it breaks Paul's heart, and he has to address sternly this behavior that's happened in the church. And so he writes what we know as, um, he writes the first letter that he writes to Corinth at that time, right, right after he'd left. Here's the thing, though. We don't have that letter. It's a lost letter. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians. He says, hey, listen, you know, I, I wrote that letter to you. It was the first letter, but we don't have it. So Paul's still in Ephesus. He's written that letter. He receives back, after he sent the letter, um, a series of questions. Hey, listen, Paul, while we got you on the line, by the way, here's what we want to know. Could you answer a few questions about marriage and divorce? Um, we have this conflict going on in the church about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Could you, could you clarify some of that? Could you talk to us about spiritual gifts? Could you tell us about how it is that we're supposed to give in the church? We don't really understand that. He addresses that. He addresses the conflict and divisions happening in the church. He writes this second letter. That's the letter we have in our Bible called 1 Corinthians. You could really scratch that out if you wanted to and write 2 Corinthians. Don't, don't do that. So, at the end of 1 Corinthians, you still with me here? In the 1 Corinthians, this is what he does. He says, hey, folks in Corinth, church in Corinth, I'm planning to come see you. I'm going to go to Macedonia, which is where Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea is. I'm going to go to Macedonia. I'm going to spend a little time there. But when I leave there, I'm going to come back to Corinth, and I hope I get there before the winter, and I'll just stay a few months with you in Corinth. And I can't wait to see you. In the meantime, I'm going to send Titus. Titus is going to come. Uh, I mean, Timothy. T Timothy's going to come. He's going to uh, hang out with you, uh, love you, minister to you uh, until I can get there. Well, here's what happens. He does. He goes to Macedonia. Timothy goes to Corinth. When Timothy gets to Corinth, Timothy discovers that there is a huge mess in Corinth. So they'd already had two letters from Paul. One we have is 1 Corinthians. Timothy goes to Corinth, the head of Paul, and when he gets there, what he realizes is things are in shambles. Remember, Corinth is a place that you come to get ahead. Corinth is a place that you can come and build your glory and seek your honor and have prominence and make a name for yourself. And so some folks had seized upon that in the church. There were these leaders. They called themselves apostles. In fact, they referred to themselves as, if Paul's an apostle, we're super apostles. Did this whole Marvel universe. They wore capes, the whole deal. 
and they began to fill these vacuums of leadership. And this is what they did specifically. They came in and began to discredit Paul's ministry. They began to discredit the gospel. They pointed to Paul's life and they said things like this. We'll just look at his ministry. The guy's homeless and wanders around all over the world. Look at his struggles. He's been imprisoned. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. You know what? Paul's poor. He didn't have have two nickels to rub together. And not only that, you know what this missionary's ventures created in Paul? His health has deteriorated. They even went so far as to say, not only that, not only that, he's a terrible speaker. Have you ever heard Paul speak? Terrible. In fact, some dude fell off a building, died, he had to bring him back to life. He was so bored. They portrayed him as simple and unsophisticated. It's what they said about the gospel. And then these false teachers, these super apostles, turn around to this congregation and they say, let me tell you something. We have something better to offer. That they offered sophistication. They offered promises of wealth and prominence and glory. They said, listen, if Paul speaks of this religion as something that's so glorious then shouldn't we have lives that match that glory? I mean, comfort and ease and security and riches and prominence and blah, blah, blah. Here's the thing, though. It's hard to, hard to live in Corinth. And people stand up and begin saying that, and they begin to believe it, and Timothy shows up, and he sees a mess. He doesn't know what to do, so he leaves. And he, he gets to Paul as fast as he can. He says, you won't believe what's happening in Corinth. So Paul drops what he's doing and he heads to Corinth. And he walks in to, to see the situation himself, to confront what's going on. And he's met at the door by these super apostles in the church standing behind him. And they shame Paul. They shame him. And they all but kick him out. He's going to write about that visit in 2 Corinthians. He calls it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, the the painful visit. So he leaves there and he writes them a letter. This is called the painful letter, the third letter Paul writes to him. He writes it through tears. He writes it through grief. Reclaims the gospel. And he begs the church to repent. This letter, this painful letter is also lost to us. Paul sends Titus after the letter. Titus reports and says, hey Paul, I've got some great news. The letter hit home. It produced a grief, what Paul's going to call a godly grief. And they repented. Most of them repented anyway. Paul, they want to see you. Not angry. They want to be able to say they're sorry and have your forgiveness. And so Paul sits down just before he's ready to leave Macedonia and go to 
Corinth, and he writes this fourth letter, what we have as 2 Corinthians. And he writes this letter because he, he wants them to know where he stands. He says, I, I didn't mean to grieve you the way I grieved you, although I'm glad I grieved you. It caused you to repent. He's going to explain to him in this letter that, hey, listen, what you're struggling with, you're struggling with the truth of the gospel, the real power of the gospel, the real power of God's grace. You're struggling with that. I know it's hard to live in Corinth and be a Christian. I know it is. I'm going to tell you about God's grace. So Paul essentially wants to help them in this letter to see how life really works. Not through the eyes of the world, not through the eyes of Corinthian wisdom, but through the eyes of Jesus. His ministry, His cross, His resurrection and everlasting glory to come. And so what He does is He makes a bold defense for the Christian life. And in the process, absolutely destroys the teaching of these false teachers. He cares about them. He, he, he loves them. He, he wants them to experience all of the grace that God has lavished upon them. He, he wants them to know the joy of the Christian life. So he labors to do that. Paul's history is rich with, with Corinth. It's complicated. And, but the fruit of that we have in our Bibles. And 2 Corinthians, by most accounts, is probably the most intimate, vulnerable, personal letter that Paul's going to write to any church. And so, this morning, we're going to step into verse 8. I encourage you to read it. It's, it's great you read it. 10 minutes uh, at home and read through it and hear Paul's heart. But we're going to drop in on chapter 8. And uh, this morning we're going to look at the first seven verses, all right? And so I'm going to read those seven verses and then we'll, we'll talk about them. Paul writes this, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their uh, abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And, and this, not as we expected, they, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us, accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and, and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Well, what Paul's referring to here as he speaks about this grace of God, he's turning to address to them, hey, listen, I'm, I'm going to be leaving Macedonia. That's where he was, where Philippi and Thessalonica and Briar. 
So I'm going to be leaving here and I'm going to be coming to you. And remember a year ago or so when I was with you the last time and things were good, not the time I got shamed and you kicked me out, but you know the other time. We talked about, like I talk about to all the churches, the, the care for the saints in Jerusalem. Because, man, to be a Christian in Jerusalem uh, at that time, particularly, was really hard. They were persecuted. They were poor. They didn't have enough money to meet their needs. And so Paul, like he did in all of the churches that he went to, he said, hey, listen, the gospel that I preach, it, it, it's an overflow from Jerusalem, and we should help the saints. And so he was taking up this collection, and he was going to take this collection to Jerusalem, present it to James and the brothers for the care of the church. And the churches said, man, we, we want to be a part of that. We want to care for the Jerusalem church. So he's reminding them, hey, listen, remember when you said that? But Paul's sitting in Macedonia. He's sitting there in Philippi. He, he's sitting in the midst of a people who at the time, Philippi, if there was a poorer place than Jerusalem, it might have been Philippi. They were in Asia Minor. They were severely persecuted. And he said, I can't help but tell you about these guys in Macedonia. I wanted to remind you of this gift. I'm coming. I want to make sure you've got it ready. But, but I can't help to tell you about these folks that I'm sitting with right now. So you won't believe their generosity. I mean, I have no other way to explain it except to call it the grace of God. They're experiencing this grace. And I know you want to experience that grace. I know you want joy. I know you want glory. I know you want to know the heart of the Christian life. And I'm here to tell you, they found it, and they didn't find it in their circumstances. They didn't find it from the next thing. They found it in the midst of suffering. They found joy. And I can't help but tell you about it. Whatever else Paul is going to say in these two chapters, he's going to, he's, he's talking about grace. Ten times he's going to use that word. You know, he never uses money. In these two chapters, he never uses the word money or a synonym of it. Grace, all over the place. I'll tell you a little bit about grace. I mean, you, you know what it is. It, it, grace is a kindness. It, it, it's a kindness that brings well-being. To, to grant somebody kindness for their well-being. And, and it's costly to the giver, but there's no expectation of reciprocity. So, so you speak about grace, you can call it a gift. And, and, so, and, and you, know, you, you know what a gift is. If you're a parent, particularly, you know what a gift is. I mean, we don't approach Christmas with the theology of Santa Claus. None of us do. Because you, if you showed up and you approach Christmas, theology of Santa Claus, checking your list, checking it twice, seeing who's naughty or nice, none of our kids would get anything. I mean, you might let them eat breakfast. I mean, you know. You, you don't giving them a gift based upon how good or bad they were. That's crazy. And you're also not giving the gift in hopes of reciprocity. You're not sitting there thinking, boy, I can't wait till they open that PlayStation, but what I really can't wait for is what they got me. <laughs> I mean, if you do, it only takes a Christmas, and you're like, oh, yeah, socks with stuff on it. That's cool. <laughs> Hope you like the PlayStation. So anyways, I mean, that's... That's not grace. Grace is like, man, I'm, I'm giving you something you don't deserve. At great cost to me. And you know what? There's incredible joy in that, isn't there? 
Grace doesn't seek its own advantage. It seeks the advantage of another. That's what it does. In the simplest form, you might say grace is this. Getting what we do not deserve. Webster says it's undeserved kindness. You say a lot of things about grace. One of the things you can say about grace is that it's not fair, is it? Dwight Moody, an old preacher, he said it this way. He said, listen, you hear professed Christians continually talk about it, and that word is grace. And yet, it is a question whether there is another word in the English language so little understood as the word grace. It's Moody's way of quoting a century before the Princess Bride came out. You use that word, but I do not think you know what it means. Let's say it this way. God's grace received is most fully enjoyed when it's given. Not, not just grace received, but grace received and given. When grace turns into generosity, that's when it's most fully enjoyed. How do you meet with the most difficult circumstances in life and yet still experience joy? Paul is saying, listen, joy comes at the intersection of grace given and the grace of giving or, or generosity. Well, what they gave wasn't according to what they gave. Their generosity wasn't according to what they were able to do. Their generosity was according to what had been done for them. It wasn't according to what they could do. Their generosity was according to what God had done for them. That's the Macedonians. Well, so look at this in, in verse 2. He talks about the severe affliction and the, and the poverty and yet the joy and the wealth of generosity. The, the affliction of the Macedonians. That, that word literally means um, to be crushed by life. You ever had that moment where you just think, I, I, can't, I can't breathe. Everything seems to be crushing in on me. That's the word. And then this word poverty, it's this word in the Greek that became in English a nautical term. It means to probe the depths. It's used a nautical term, to probe the depths of the earth. It's like a Jacques Cousteau kind of word. You might could translate that. They're down to the depth poverty. Here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, the, the Christian's experience of joy has no correlation to his or her outward circumstances. I mean, you, you can see that all through the New Testament. Joy is not dependent upon what's going on right now in my life, how much I have or how little I have. In fact, the way the New Testament presents it is that Christians experience joy in the midst of great persecution and great suffering. See, Paul talks about the Macedonians. They had a poverty overflowing into wealth. And it might seem backwards, but here's how the crazy logic goes. The crazy gospel logic. You ready? Joy plus severe affliction plus poverty equals wealth. Wealth of generosity, joy 
multiplied. In fact, the New Testament's clear. On the other hand, material wealth, you know what material wealth can often do to us? It can actually clothe or mask or bury our spiritual poverty. Jesus, in Revelation, as he addresses the churches, he says to Laodicea, Laodicea was a church that was rich. In fact, they were rich and they knew they were rich. And they even boasted of their giving. And Jesus says about them, hey, listen, you have a problem. Here's what it is. I'll put it delicately. You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, and you don't even know it. All that you have has masked your real condition. That's what material wealth can do. Oscar Wilde, who was an Irish writer, playwright, uh, the, the, the Dorian Gray, the, he, he was a guy in, in uh, Ireland, and as he wrote, early in his fame and his influence, he wrote a lot about the aristocracy. He wrote about the benefits of being rich. He wrote about the pitiful nature of being poor. He would say that nobody looks on the poor and, and smiles. I mean, the reality is in our heart, we all feel sorry for the poor people. They, they really have no hope of any happiness or joy of existence in this world. Let's just be honest. That's what he would say. Well, later in Wilde's life, and he didn't actually live to be very old, but later in his life, he got caught up in a scandal, was publicly shamed, was arrested, and spent two years in jail, and lost everything. All his fortune. He, he lost the reputation of his name. And he, he talks about this incredible shame and loss that he experienced. And he's in jail, and he's writing just before he gets out, and he writes this thing called uh, De Profundis. It's a, it's a letter about about to leave jail and enter into the world. And he says this. He says, I'm completely penniless and absolutely homeless. Yet there are things worse in this world than that. And I, I'm, I'm quite certain when I say that I... I would. I would rather go out from this prison. Um, I, I, would, I would rather not go out from this prison with bitterness in my heart against the world. Rather, I would gladly and readily beg for my bread from door to door. If I get nothing from the house of the rich, I know I will get something from the house of the poor. Those who have much are often greedy. Those who have little always have something to share. One commentator said this about the Macedonians. He says, despite all their own difficulties, they did not turn inwards. Their concern was for others. The, the proof of authentic love, it, it was that this released the divine power into the world. What a contrast to the church at Corinth, whose internal divisions and desires to get ahead turned them inward. It was robbing them of the riches of grace. Well, in 3 through 5, just, just look at what he says again. It says, for, the, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, actually beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, 
not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Paul didn't ask him for a specific amount. He wasn't looking at percentages. Generosity, whole life. Being a generous person, a generous life, it's not measured by percentages or, or amounts. It's, it's about more than money. Listen, the Macedonians, they, they hadn't prospered. They weren't giving out of their surplus. They weren't giving what was left over. They gave out of their poverty. They gave, he said, beyond their means. Here's what he means by this. Generosity impacts how you live. Grace received, generosity given, if it's generosity at all, impacts how you live. See, most people, how we live impacts our generosity. Paul saying, no, no, no. Generosity impacts how you live. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. So, so I'm going to read you Jonathan Edwards. Read it slow. He's hard to read. But then I'm going to read you what Tim Keller says about Jonathan Edwards. And that'll make sense. But hang in there with me. Don't want you to miss Edwards, all right? It says, The gospel obliges us to give when we are in distress to those in greater distress than us. How else will we bear one another's burdens? If we never relieve others' burdens... But when we can do it without being burdened ourselves, how then do we bear our neighbor's burden when we bear no burden at all? Got it? All right. Keller makes sense of it for us. He says, he goes on, it says bear one another's burdens. When we say, I can't afford to give, what we mean is, I can't afford to give without it actually burdening me. If I give, then some of the burden of this need will shift over to me. I won't be able to do something I want to do. And Edward says, if you never give, unless it doesn't burden you, you're not bearing anybody's burdens. You haven't gone out there. You're not giving in a way that bears others' burdens until you feel the burdens themselves come on to you because of your generosity to them. They begged for the favor of taking part in it. Not out of duty or obligation, but they wanted to be a part of it. Just before I, in between services, I, I got a call from my daughter. And um, she is working at, as a summer staff for a, a Young Life camp right now, family camp, Trail West in Colorado. And um, she, she went up there, and she's working with kids, like a kids club coordinator kind of deal. It's a lot of fun, you know, Young Life, off the wall, crazy, all that stuff. And they kind of leverage these, you know, college students and high school students, the summer staff and work. They kind of leverage it for their, for their energy and their... Uh, and, they're, and they're all, you know, cute college kids, and they, and they just love these families, and, you know, and it's, uh, you know, they, it's, it's tiring, but it, it's kind of in the sweet spot of who you are when you're in high school and college. 
and get there and be high energy and make a great week for these families. What she didn't know when she was going up there was that the third week of her three-week assignment was going to be cancer week. So all the kids that come to the camp this week that show up today have cancer. They were uh, probably shouldn't have told this. So they were meeting this morning and the guy who's the camp director just want to let him know that, hey, listen, this is some of these kids, uh, they're not going to make it. I mean, some of them are, are not going to get better. All of a sudden, here they are. He said, but listen, this is going to be the best week of their life. You, you are going to get to love them and care for them and give your life away to them. But it's not going to be out of the surplus of who you are. It's going to be in the midst of the poverty of the situation, the affliction and the distress. And so I said to her, I said, oh, Maggie, she calls and she's overwhelmed by it and trying to get ready for it. And I said, look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 1 through 3. Just, just look at that. That's what we're talking about this morning. She goes, that's what he read this morning. I didn't make that up. It's not, generosity doesn't come because of the surplus of my life that, oh, I, here I have a little time, or here I have a little money, or I can do that and it not bother me. That's not generosity. We feel it. It affects us. And then you know what it does, Paul says? She want no joy. That's where it happens. When the grace received from God comes out of our life and overflows into a wealth of generosity, you know what that is? That's joy. You thought it was from buying something or accumulating something or having something. That's not joy. Joy comes at the intersection of grace received and generosity given. Skipping through some stuff. Pick it up next week. Let me show you two more verses and then we'll take communion. Look at verses 6 and 7. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he'd started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Here, here's what I want to say. But he says, hey, Corinthians. Okay, I've talked about the Macedonians. Now you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to excel this way. He says to them, I mean, this is like this is eerie. He could have written this to Bethel Bible Church. He could have said, listen, hey, look, I know about you guys. Man, y'all pursue excellence in ministry. Faith, 
You got that. You work hard at it. You define it. You define it. You defend it. Speech. You guys speak eloquently, particularly when there's guest preachers. There's knowledge. You know stuff. There's earnestness. You know, in the first letter that we still have from Paul, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 13, he says, hey, listen, let me tell you about your gifts. You can have knowledge that knows all the mysteries. You can have faith that moves a mountain. If you don't have love, it's nothing. And you're nothing. What he's saying here. So you got all these things. But man, without a love, without a generosity, without a giving your life away. If, if you think these things while clinging to your stuff, then you missed it. You missed it. Excel in this also. Paul hopes the Corinthians will take heart from the example. It looks like maybe he's playing one church off the other. He's not doing that. He doesn't say, oh, well, look at the poor church and how great they are, and you guys are rich and affluent and be shamed. He's not doing that. He, he, it's not a gimmick. The, the amount didn't matter. It did Corinthians, you are longing for what these believers have. I'm just wanting to tell you, just wanting to tell you what it looks like. You want to compete with them? This isn't about how much money anybody gives. Compete this way. Who's the most joyful? Who's the most willing? But the attitudes of the heart, those are hard to measure, right? Paul always turns us from the outside. He says, quit looking on the outside. What's happening in here? This is what matters. Paul commends the Macedonians, overflowing joy. And he tells them how they got there giving their lives away generously. There's more to say about all this, and we will over the next couple of weeks. Read 2 Corinthians. Go, go home and read it. You, you'll love it, especially chapter 10, 11, to 10 through 13. It, Paul's sarcasm is just dripping. It's great. In the meantime, I'm going to pray that God would work on us, our hearts, our minds. We, we can't can't muster this up. It's something only the Spirit of God can do. But we want to respond to the Spirit of God as He moves in our life. One of the ways we do that is we're going to take communion together and we got to do that. So if the guys would come forward out, the verse we'll look at in communion, it, it comes just after the verses we looked at this morning and... Um, this is, this is what we remember this morning at communion. Paul's going to go on just two verses later. He says it this way. 
For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, eternally, infinitely rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's what we remember this morning. Our practice is, is if you're a believer, you've put your faith in Jesus, this table's open to you. Um, we'll pass out all the elements, we'll wait till we've all been served, and then we'll partake together. And in the few minutes while these are being passed out, would you ask the Spirit of God to search your heart? If there are things that need to be confessed, say, I, I, need, to, I need to confess this sin. And claim that, listen, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we don't take this Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So if you would, would you, would you bow with me? Father, we come to You this morning just scratching the surface of what Paul was writing to the Corinthians that he, that he loved so dearly as he's fighting for their faith, as he's, well, as he's fighting for their joy, as he's fighting for them knowing and experiencing what the Christian life is, what, what it means to live out who we are in your son Jesus. By the writing to a group of people that it was hard to live in Corinth and to love Jesus. And Paul's fighting for that. And so, Lord, it's relevant for us today. And we know we can't walk out of here and muster this up and tell ourselves to do better and to do more. And to... But that, Father, what we need is for you to deeply affect our hearts and our minds. That, Father, by your Spirit, you would draw us to the grace of your Son, Jesus. And we want to experience that more and more and more. So, Father, we ask that you do that in us. And, and we pray that the only way we can as we come to this time of communion, we pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus, who Father, gave His life, his, his body, His humanity to death on our behalf. And Father, who shed His blood for the covering and the cleansing of our sin. Well, that's what we celebrate and remember this morning. In Jesus' name, by the power of Your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.